Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The first way that I explain it is it's a magical horror game about a group of people with broken lives who are willing to sacrifice everything. Um, to get to the center of a mysterious zone that's going to mutate them one by one and leave only one alive to get to the center. Why do I do this podcast every week? It's because I get a chance to talk to passionate creators about creating. You will hear that passion in this sit down with Raph. Please excuse the sound quality. This was recorded over a year and a half ago when the original zone was coming to Kickstarter. Raph needed to delay it, but we had him come back, and you're going to hear a segment that we recorded just recently that gives you all the details on the Kickstarter that is live as this episode drops. We have played it several times on the channel since this interview, and there are links to those plays in the show notes. Spoiler alert, I love this game. Now, this may be our first guest who discovered role-playing games at Burning Man, and you're going to love who showed it to him. We have a great discussion on storytelling games, and we answer one of the big questions. Is Fiasco the magic, the gathering of storytelling games? I was impressed with the amount of thought Raph put into the experience of play as the game starts, as soon as you open the box. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Raph. Actually, my two times with Raph. to see if you can tell if they're lying to you, go ahead and roll. Ugh, sorry, you missed by three. Uh, yeah, you think they're telling the truth. This is Sean. And this is Navi. And together we're a couple of drakes, the creators of Court of Blades and Deadbell. When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Top. Top. Toppy Top Top. <laughs> Don't try that again. <laughs> when we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Welcome to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. Your host, Craig Shipman. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Raph D'Amico, creator of the RPG online, but it's not online. It's a very interesting thing. It's called The Zone. Now, Raph D'Amico is an award-winning game designer based out of San Francisco. He loves making play-to-lose story games that push analog and digital boundaries to teach and run themselves. He got into games through UX design and improv and loves metaphors, mechs with a heart, and new weird horror. Now, I went and, uh, you know, I found Raph, and I, thought, I want to think it was via Twitter. Someone pointed me out. I was like, hey, Craig, have you checked this out yet? So uh, I did. I went over to the website, and uh, Raph describes the zone as a digital tabletop story game of magical realism, mutant weirdness, and collaborative self-destruction. So if you're not interested at this point, I don't know what to do about it. Raph, welcome to the third floor. It's good to be here, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been, I've really been looking forward to it, man, because uh, like I mentioned before we started recording, I've got lots of questions. But 
First question is your origin story as a gamer. So there was a day, and it wasn't yesterday, where you knew nothing about tabletop gaming, nothing about rolling dice, character sheets, and all of that, and then suddenly it was put in front of you. So I'd like to go back there if we could. Oh, man. I, lo- I love the question. You know, um, I, was, I was always aware. I was aware of these kinds of games. Um, I still remember when I was like 10 years old, just attempting to draw a battle map with some friends who had heard of D&D, but none of us actually had it. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was there on the consciousness. I was playing kind of card games. I was not a magic player. I was a uh, Star Trek, the next generation collectible card game player. Um, and it was like the craft brew of, uh, that's right. Card games. That's right. <laughs> I don't play your magic. <laughs> you well, you streamer. Uh, the next generation cause, please. Yes, yes, yes. Um, no, it, so, so, you know, it was kind of like floating around in my mind, but mostly I was like just a video gamer. You know, I, I used to play and mod first person shooters. That's really how I got into game design, um, on, on the, the digital side. And, when uh so i grew up in the uk and moved to chicago um after you know a few years after college and i was doing a lot of improv out there and like a lot like i got into doing it six or seven nights a week wow for a couple of years and that was really my first encounter with the whole the the notion that a group of people could come in together and with just a loose set of rules could create a whole story And, you know, improv is the most extreme version of it. You know, in an improv show, you're never stepping away and metagaming. It's just, if it's not on stage, if it's in your head, it doesn't exist. But there's rules, you know, there is, everyone knows about yes and, but the training is learning about all these principles. Um, And when I moved to the Bay Area... I um one of the first friends I made was the wonderful Randy Lubin, most recently of Story Synth fame. Oh yeah. And uh we immediately bonded over our shared love of storytelling and games and started exploring this world of really the the kind of the, the GMless more uh from a I, I almost think of it as if D&D is one branch, right? Like one evolutionary tree. There's this whole other tree of yeah. games that started from a really different perspective, more the the Nordic style, the more uh, improv less structured style. But other than a very, very short uh, and ill-fated session of the game Exalted, that I'm not sure any of us played properly and where uh, the thing I remember from it was a single kick that lasted 45 minutes because we we're trying to get the most stunting dice. It's right. very exciting. Um my real intro, like the real, real, real moment where I fell into this was, uh, and this is a little bit of a weird story, Craig, but I was it's a weird a, podcast. So you're, you're, you're right. You're going to love this one. So as any new transplant to the Bay Area, to California, obviously the thing that happens at the end of the summer is Burning Man. And I was oh, yeah. coming from Europe and really had heard of this thing. I was kind of excited about it. And in my second year in the Bay Area, I, I went to Burning Man for the first and the last time. And someone before I went gave me this one piece of advice. They said, look, there's this really cool thing you can do that nobody really knows about. You can deliver the mail. Yeah. It's like, really? <laughs> deliver the mail? <laughs> what do you mean deliver the mail? I said, yeah. Little did you know, you can actually send mail to Black Rock City to uh, you name and camp. 
and it'll get delivered. And you can go to Center Camp. You can ask for a mail run, and uh, you know if you if you don't seem like you're going to immediately lose it in some haze in, out in the sand, then uh, maybe they'll give you a couple pieces of mail, and you'll have a really interesting experience. Yeah, little, almost like a journey. Yeah, yeah kind of like being like an RPG protagonist almost. Yeah. So we got there and went over to Center Camp. Second day, I was there and uh talked to the guy at the 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 mail station and he he just looked at me he was like why are you doing this <laughs> of all the things you could be doing here but very suspiciously he gave me a couple letters and a postcard and I, I biked around spent it took the whole day to learn the first couple third one i get to this camp right at the periphery and there's a camp meeting that's ending and at the end of the meeting this guy gets up and he says i've got this game and I need three players. And this is Tuesday. You know, time has no meaning at Burning Man. Sure. Um, so what he's about to say, as as far as I could tell, is is in the realm of of the, the magical. He says, on Friday, three days later, what does that even mean? Friday at noon. If you come to my trailer, we're going to play this game. It's a storytelling game. Explore magical worlds. You want to do it? And I said, well, Yeah. Went up to him, said, I'm not part of your camp. Would it be cool if I joined? And I later discovered that the game was Archipelago and that the guy whose trailer it was was Peter Atkinson. (laughs) If you don't, if listeners don't know, it's one of the founders of Wizards of the Coast. So it's apparently notorious for for doing this, for bringing people into the magical world of storytelling games at Burning Man. And that was my first taste of the, the... the type of game that was truly like improv, collaborative, no dice, just drawing a map together, sharing the characters, sharing the world together. And I was just completely head over heels. And then when I went back to, to San Francisco, you know, in the next few months, I'd play Fiasco for the first time. I'd play Microscope and and it's, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, the, the rest of the story is... Well, so probably going to be the rest of this podcast. Yeah, we got a whole podcast to go over this. I'd be curious what your reaction was because Fiasco is the biggie, right? That's kind of the big one hmm. on there. He's been on the show um, and we've talked about it. But what, what was your take on Fiasco? The first time experiencing that is is Fiasco truly the? Does it deserve to be the Magic the Gathering of storytelling games? <laughs> you know, I think what makes Fiasco really special is and and this is one of the things that's inspired me the most about fiasco is that it starts with the idea of you're going to have this experience it's going to have a beginning it's going to have an end it's going to have an arc yep and i think one of the reasons it really does deserve um deserve the 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 position that it has in our community is that it's the perfect example of a game that has the right frame story, the, the Coen Brothers style, irresponsible decisions thing, supported by mechanics that naturally cause you to go really well, and then the resource pool of the dice causing you to inevitably tilt into disaster. And, um, you know, I've played the card version, and it uh, simplifies it, it streamlines it. And, and I would say, like, that, it's just a great example of... Um, I would say the, the the dice version is no longer the best entry point. I think it's arguably uh, 
a much crunchier version than it needs to be. And the, the, the card version is the, the streamlined experience. Um, I completely agree. I would only ever introduce people to the card version. That's right. That's right. It's just a great example of, of uh, as storytelling technology evolves, people changing the way that they're designing the game itself so that they're still delivering the experience, but just improving the underlying technology mm-hmm. of uh, supporting players. So guys, uh, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. That's what we're going to do with Raft today. So we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to start delving into what the hell is the zone. We'll be right back. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Writer's Room, where you can find all sorts of adventures, antics, and escapades for the 7th C TTRPG. I'm Zoe Jackson. I'm Evan Ackley. And I am Patrick Keefe. And we are here to tell you the stories of 7th C. If you enjoy actual play podcasts featuring adventure, drama, and swashbuckling heroism using music and dynamic sound effects, then you've come to the right place. Not only do we bring you stories from our 7th C gameplay, we also discuss the mechanics of the game in special episodes called Notes with the Narrator. To learn more, our Linktree link will be in the bio, and that will help you find us on your favorite podcatcher, as well as support us through our many different platforms. Won't you join us? So like I mentioned in the first segment, Raph, um, you know, someone pointed this out to me and um, I, I don't know, I have a much better idea of it now because I've had some conversations, uh, I've done a lot more research, but at first I wasn't sure what I was looking at. Now it's slick as hell. So for those of you listening, if you haven't already gone over to check out the Zone website, um, you can tell that uh, Raph and uh, whatever team he's working with knows what they're doing. I mean, it's a sexy website and, and, and you want to play it, you want to try it out. Um, but I, I want to try to help people. So if I were to sit down, um, at Burning Man and, uh, someone's delivering the mail and I say to them, Hey, have you played the zone yet? And they're like, no, what is it? What, what's the best thing to explain to them? The first way that I explain it is it's a magical horror game about a group of people with broken lives who are willing to sacrifice everything, um, to get to the center of a mysterious zone that's going to mutate them one by one and leave only one alive to get to the center where they can deliver their wish to the zone. And uh, let's just say that uh, the zone um, has uh, seen a lot of Twilight Zone episodes and uh, will not necessarily <laughs> deliver your wish the way you're expecting. And the, the kind of the magical thing about it is that everyone's fates are predestined at the beginning. It's a play-to-lose game where you know that you're all except one going to die, and even that last person is going to, you know, maybe not live on in the way that they might expect. And as each player dies, they become the zone and get oh, more narrative control over that side of making things weird for the others. And ultimately, together, the zone players decide the fate of the final player. Oh, so that's interesting. So it's not a player elimination situation. It's a transformation, right? You go Correct. from playing a character to playing the, the 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 antagonist would you consider the zone the antagonist yeah and and this is this is one of the things that i uh have, have tried to express in the game which is the zone is the antagonist but 
kind of in the same way that we all have our inner critic or our internal antagonist who's trying to okay. show us our, our worst fears and our and to pull us into our worst obsessions. The goal of the zone is it's an alien place. We don't really know what it wants, but what it will do is it will take whatever you bring into it and it will show it back to you in the way that will change you. So whatever phobias and obsessions you bring in will get pushed right in your face. So that's interesting to me. So is it, now we talk about the phobias and obsessions, is that the phobias and obsession of a character that we're playing? Correct. Or, or, the, or, is, or is there an, an experience as the player that involves that? Or is it, is it truly a role-playing game where you're playing a character? It's truly a role-playing game where you're, you're playing a character. And the thing that you're exploring, the, the, the game is very much, if you've seen the movie Annihilation or you've watched the movie Stalker, it's very much in that genre. Gotcha. Um, and it's about playing these broken characters. For example, the writer who hasn't been able to write a word for a decade and whose whole life has fallen apart. And they're willing to sacrifice themselves just for the chance to write another word. And there's twists. <laughs> Each character is created in a very lightweight way, but there's um, different preset phobias and obsessions. You can create your own. And each one adds a little twist to, well, is it a novelist who just hasn't been able to write the next great American novel? Or is it a journalist who keeps getting scooped by the that damn D. Fitzbaker who keeps getting the Pulitzer before they do? You know? Right. Um, so you can really explore different aspects of the, the psyche and, um, it's, uh, it's inspired by a lot of kind of deeper work and about the kind of themes of self-annihilation and, and the like. Um, but how much you want to link it to yourself and explore those themes within yourself, uh, is, is really up to you. Which is, which is true of any role-playing game, right? I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's now a whole field growing of, of actually using RPGs as, as part of therapy. Um, and, and, and taking it, you know, mechanizing that and using that. So that makes, that makes sense to me. So I, I go, I get in touch with three, three or four, uh, friends and I say, Hey, let's go to the zone. Um, let's go ahead and play this. Um, what should I prepare them with? So is there any type of, you know, cause it's, it sounds like it could be a pretty, uh, emotional potential process there. Is there a discussion that needs to happen at the beginning? Any safety tools? Absolutely. And, one of my design goals uh, for the for the game was to have it really take care of all of those things for the the players so that nice. for me the game doesn't begin when you start playing the game begins when you open the box and I I, I think it's the responsibility of of game designers and it's really cool to see the the whole scene moving in this direction to think of the whole experience until the moment where you actually start telling the story and make sure that you're, you're really bringing the best scaffolding and best structure. And safety is, is a huge part of that. Um, safety and calibration. One of the important things about a horror game, and I, we'll probably get into this more when we talk about the mechanics, is agency. Yeah. There is nothing scarier than what's already in your head. Um, right. It's way scarier to be given the ability to uh, and, and supported in, in coming up with things that terrify you mm -hmm. uh, than to have, you know, some GM just going to throw stuff at you. So uh, something that's built into the paper version of the game and that's even more guided in the, the digital version is um, a, a safety and calibration moment where everyone anonymously votes for the, the rating, you know, PG-13 oh, nice. okay. to R-rated because I want to give people the ability to express themselves uh, at that high level first before getting into um, 
you know, it, it can be a little bit of social pressure. I know the game will be played by groups of friends. Sometimes we played at cons by people who don't know each other that much. So that first step of just establishing the high level rating is something that is a good idea to do with as much kind of social kind of alibi as possible. And then yeah. guide players through just a really simple, hey, not just like what are you trying to avoid in the game, uh, similar to Lions and Veils, but also and I think this is really important. Uh, give people a chance to express like what they love about the genre so they can go in that direction. I think nice. it's really important to the calibration, not just to pull people away from the things that are bad, but to give them explicit ways of saying, what are the things I want to go to that are, that are good for me? And we can all agree on that. Yeah. It's funny, you know, um, to your point, you know, things like, you know, uh, X cards and lines and veils are, are something that's becoming not an uncommon discussion. Now it's, it's becoming a norm, which is really, really nice. And I think that that's important because I, I don't know if I needed it when it was just me and my buddies playing 20 years ago, but it's not just me and my buddies playing 20 years ago. You know, I'm playing with people that I know casually. I'm playing with people that, um, I, you know, I wasn't there when they were 12 years old, so I don't know exactly what they are, but more importantly, and I think this is going to be something that I've started doing somewhat recently and it's changed a lot for me, but I don't think it's discussed enough. And you've hinted at it is the check-in. Um, and now after three sessions, it's one of, it's a, something that's real important to me to say, Hey, what, how are things going? Like, what, what are you digging about the game so far? Right. You know, what, um, what are you missing? Is there, is there something that's bugging you about it? Is there something you're really hoping will happen? Um, and I, and I do that like explicitly now, but I also do it covertly by asking my players to do recaps, because when you ask your player to do a recap, they're going to tell you what they love. They're going to tell you what's important. So it's really cool to me, Raph, that you've got that built into the game as well. This, this idea of now let's not talk about just what we're going to avoid. Let's talk about what's going to make you excited about it. Yeah, I love that. I love what you're talking about, the idea of recaps, because you really see from what people remember, you really see what resonated with them. You see what they loved. Yeah. And uh, in quietly, you can just leave behind the things that maybe didn't resonate. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone do a recap. and I'm like, Jesus, I just threw that out there and you just latched. I need to wait. Hold on. I got to write this down. I forgot about that. That's going to come up just so you know. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's very easy to do. Um, so if people listening right now, Raph, are not familiar with storytelling games, right? So let's pretend that they're very traditional uh, role players or potentially have never really even done role playing or haven't had an interest. Cause I've noticed there's a lot of people that have no interest in a traditional role playing game that I put fiasco in front of them. They're like, this is great. And then if I were to ever then try to put call of Cthulhu in front of them, they're like, yeah, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. Let's go back and play fiasco again. So what's a way for us to help people that have never done a storyteller game to really understand the difference here and help define it as a genre so we can get a sense of what the zone is for us. Uh, I love that question. The way that I that I talk about it is there's a couple of touchstones. So touchstone number one is, have you ever been around the campfire with a group of friends and someone starts telling a story? You know, maybe it's a made up story. Maybe it's just some, you know, scary thing that happened. Or maybe it's just like some just doesn't have to be scary at all. Maybe it's just that story. But, you know, that feeling where you're all just trading stories and it feels intimate and the campfire is lighting all of your faces and it's making everything around you pure darkness as if there's no world beyond that little circle of, of, of kind of glittering light of, uh, of, of the fire. Um, everyone knows that feeling or some version of that feeling. If it's not the campfire, then it's late night 
sitting on couches in your friend's living room, just kind of shooting the shit. High and shit. High <laughs> 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 it helps. Everyone knows that feeling. Yeah. Everyone knows right. that feeling. And that yeah. to me is what storytelling games are really about. They're that sense of you're all there, you're present and you're telling the story and you're building on each other. And that story is just, it's just going, it's just building and building and building and building. Um, and so that's the vibe. That's the most important thing. Now, when I, in a more mechanical sense, the, the way that I introduced the game and, and really I should say my primary goal with the digital version of the game was to have a GMless game that truly facilitates itself. Like no one's a GM, no one's a facilitator. You just all go to this website together. You know, the game is just going to be telling you what you need to know as you know it. Um, and the thing that it tells you three screens in, it says you're going to be telling a movie together. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone has an innate sense because we watched everyone, you know, like movie, the, 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 the literacy, the movie literacy is so high. We all have yeah. embedded in our minds the ideas of scenes and stories from movies and also the duration of the game end to end. It's about three hours if you include the rules. So it's, also quite similar in length to to a movie. So I, I, I hope that gives people a little bit of intuition about imagining that you're going to be there with your friends or with a, you know, a great group of gamers who are into this genre, and you're going to be taking turns just telling scenes from this movie. Just imagine that you are take your favorite movie and you're just, just like breaking down, just talking it through. Um, maybe if you want, you can act it out. You can try and be the characters or maybe you're just like giving them that kind of plot synopsis of every scene. That's really right. up to you. But, yep. um, that's, that's kind of my second touchstone for, for how you described the, the storytelling. So I, this thing has been around for a while and you've been working on this for a while. Um, I'd be interested to know what has been some unexpected feedback you've gotten. So have you been in a situation where you've put this game in front of people and they've told you things and you're like, wow, I did not think about that or I didn't see that coming. I mean, it could be good or bad or things that maybe, you know, impacted the, the, the next steps in the game. Oh, all, uh, God, so much. Um, so in my professional life, I'm a UX designer. And so the, the thing that's core in both UX design and game design is playtesting, right? User yep. testing, playtesting. Um, the game, the first version of the game happened in almost a kind of fugue state. It was, I, I had just seen Annihilation for the third time. I had just, and I mean just, like weeks before I'd gone through a huge breakup. And oh, that's always good. I had um, played uh, a wonderful game called Love in the Time of Seath um, with, uh, with, with Randy, Randy Lubin, and Jason Morningstar, and, and a couple other folks. And all of that stuff came together. And a week later, I had the, the first draft and assembled some friends to, to, to play it. And since then, in the first couple of years of its development, um, I would say I, I, I kind of did the count. About a hundred playtesters went through, wow. went into the zone. Uh, I brought it to Metatopia. I brought it to Big Bad Con. A couple of years running, ran some playtests uh, online, and then with the, the digital version, like a bunch more. Played it with friends. Tried it in a bunch of different settings, and so I would say that. Almost every aspect of the game was shaped by by playtests. So, for example, the, the very first version of the game was extremely character-centric. Uh, mm. The character sheets were two pages long. They were inspired by Love in the Time of Seath. I, I had established um, 
relationships between each of the characters. So, you know, the scientists and the chaplain obviously have this rivalry, the, the science god thing. Um, kind of a cliche, but always works. Yeah, um, people are familiar with it. The chaplain and the soldier it was an army chaplain, so the the, the 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 chaplain and the soldier had had fought together and had this this fraught relationship where they'd done terrible things and and so on. It was I, I'd matrixed it out and like a every character had something they thought about every other character and they wanted from them. And in that very first playtest, even it became immediately clear that the characters were not the real story. That the characters were a <laughs> vessel for creating this very weird world telling magical realist strange stuff, like almost describing a dream. And that the, 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 the point of the characters was to give people a framework for mutating and then killing their own characters. And, and so all that character development kind of flew out of the window Right. for what it's worth. Um, there are certain groups of players who've um, on the other hand uh, expressed that they would love to do a more character focused game. And so in the final version, uh, the scene cards are tagged with is the character scene. Is it a, you know, anomaly scene? You can like pull out a bunch of the cards that aren't character cards and have a very character focused game. But so that's interesting to me, Ref. So you can you can curate the game. Absolutely, then, it sounds like based on what cards you include or not, and they've got it. Sounds like they're tagged. Yeah, that's one of the goals. And one of the things that's really interesting about. And this goes back to our conversation earlier about Fiasco, right? Like the idea of establishing the kind of experience you want people to have. So for example, I call it a, a magical horror game or a magical realist horror game because one of the things that I know is on a spectrum here is that some people want to have an experience that is just like a blood-soaked rampage. If you've seen The Thing, if you've seen John Carpenter's The Thing, yeah. absolute classic, right? It's not... Yeah. There's not a lot of magic in that film. It's really just pure horror and yep. it's disgusting and it's amazing. Yep. Um, on the other hand, there's other stories that are much, they're less bloody. They're more about people walking off into the trees and turning into plants or turning into pure energy or just, uh, mm -hmm. you know, rediscovering certain aspects of themselves just before they float off into dust and they're, they're more ethereal. And I really want the game to support that range and, I think it's actually important for the horror and the, the, and the magic to be balanced out because if you have beauty, then the horror is more horrible. And if you have horror, the beauty is more beautiful. Yep. And it was the same thing with a lot of the other aspects of the game that um, it all goes in, the, the, these different aspects support each other. Character supports the environment, environment supports like the weird monsters that you see, but it's possible that some tables want to go in one direction or another direction. It's possible, and this is again inspired by Fiasco, of course, is uh, to have content packs. You know, in the future, I'll, I'll be yep. introducing more guided stories. So, you know, you want to do the thing? You know, I'll give you the, the Arctic base uh, to explore, the Arctic zone <laughs> full of horrible shape-shifting monsters. Um, and it was really exciting to me to come up with a, a flexible framework that would allow people to pull the game and hack it and pull it in a bunch of different directions. That's very, very cool. So, guys, let's talk a little bit more about uh, how the hell you play this game. So we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, um, we're going to try to get an understanding from Raph um, really what mechanically happens as we tell this story. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, 
and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So now that we've got a feeling, Raph, of the world, um, the experience, and um, kind of the range, which I like. I like that there's a range here, and, and, and it's multiple uh, on multiple levels. Let's get to the nitty gritty, though. So uh, you and I sit down, and let's let's do it uh, digitally. Let's say you and I meet on uh, the Zone website. Uh, what's going to happen? The first thing that you're going to do is you're going to you're going to just there's there's no login. You just uh, go to thezonerpg.com. You click to create a new a new game. If you ever played Jackbox, right, it's that same kind of mm-hmm. logic. You create a new game. You share the, the game link with uh, the other folks playing. Everyone just says what their name is and hangs out in the lobby until everyone joins. Um, you can see that everyone's joining as their, their kind of presence dots turn green and every player is represented by this glowing orb, but that's also their mouse position. So it just gives, gives you a sense of, of physicality of this digital yeah. world uh, that we've all been stuck in for a year and a half. And when you're all here, you just click start and you have a guided introduction which explains to you, kind of like we did earlier, what's this game about? How long is it going to last um, what should you expect? When's a good time to go to the bathroom? <laughs> there's a briefing, which the players read out, taking turns. And, and there's, there's something I'm doing there, which is to get people into the feel of, of shared storytelling. All those instructions are read out one paragraph at a time. This is, this is actually completely stolen from the way that a lot of LARPs are taught. Right. Uh, so, you know, LARP technology absolutely is way ahead of, of tabletop here because um that that paradigm of here's the instructions let's just take turns reading everything is is just yep. you know we mentioned jason morningstar earlier he's so good at this so i'm using that to, to get people into the game so immediately you're reading out the briefing that establishes the world that establishes what the zone is establishes how you got here you know you're the 14th expedition Unclear if there's been 13 before you or any number of <laughs> others. And um, you're all expecting to die. It's, uh, it's, it's a risk. No other expeditions come out of the zone. Uh, but, uh, you know, with ex- without accepting liability, the Federal Bureau of Coherence uh, is uh, grateful for you volunteering for this mission. 
Now, up to this point, then, I haven't read any rules. You really haven't read any rules. We've exchanged and read some things out loud, and we're still okay, right? We're still, yep. this is exactly where we're supposed to be. So let's keep going. Exactly. And right after that, I introduced the board. So the game is a card based RPG. Uh, it's very much inspired uh, and, and, in fact, uh, is built on top of the Archipelago system. So the not-so-easy cards, if anyone's familiar with Archipelago, it's just this wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> complex resolution system that always makes things so, so much more interesting whenever you try and do something hard. Um, the core of the game is a spiral of cards representing locations that you're going to go on, which each have three variants. So there's so many possible combinations of zones that are just randomly set up. There's a deck of scene cards which you're going to draw, which have scenes like you encounter a horrible monster or one of you uh, lies to another player, a character to, to, to get something or you try and take a doomed shortcut. Um, they're, they're supposed to be short, just a few minutes long. And then there's a deck of not-so-easy cards, which are how you resolve anytime anyone tries to do anything hard. And the cards, most of them will also cause your character to mutate in light or major ways. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's tables and, and, and support to help you come up with mutations. You come up with your own mutations. And then there's a deck of fate cards. So each character has a fate card turned face down, laid on top of the location where they're going to die. So you know that, you know that there are some locations where someone's going to die. You don't know who it's going to be until you get there. So at this point, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so we know we know mm -hmm. we know when a death is going to happen. Mm -hmm. But now does now does the player know when nope. they're going to die? Or, oh, that's interesting. And when you get to it, narratively, you can claim each other's fates, which leads to okay. the most. This is one of my favorite things about the game: is the fate hot potato that happens when several <laughs> players are really excited by. Uh, the way that their character could just die horribly in the scene and are just competing to try and see who will uh, who who will ultimately uh, who will die, um, and it also allows if there's an, an if there's a story that's emerging. So I've I've had playtests where it's just very obvious that one of the players is, their, their characters kind of become the protagonist, and so you have the other players start kind of throwing themselves under the bus to help that player make it to the center, and it's just awesome. So at this point, the game is teaching you all this just interactively. It's showing you the table. It's putting each of those decks on the table. And again, you're reading out those, those short instructions, introducing it much like I have now. Right. And then it dumps you into character creation. Character creation is super, super light. You pick an archetype. There's seven archetypes. Um, like I mentioned earlier, the soldier, the chaplain, the writer, you know, the entrepreneur, right. and so on. And you create a phobia, create an obsession. And this gets at, again, one of the principles of the game, which is scaffolding. Every mm -hmm. single choice, I give you the opportunity to be creative, but I also give you the support. So if you can't think of an obsession, you just drop down. There's like five or six of them. Um, and then around that time, you also do that, that safety and calibration that I mentioned uh, where you have a chance to, to vote on the rating of the game. And it's also my chance to introduce a few principles. So there's a, there's a few, obviously the, there's the X card, which is like the top level. But one of the ones that I really love is the principle of just letting people uh, think. Uh, give people enough time 
when you think they really, really need help, don't help them. <laughs> nice. Yeah. People, people sometimes need to, to, to let their ideas kind of stew. They need to, to let them to have a little bit of silence to, to, to think about what they're going to say. And it's encouraged to ask for help if you want it, but slow the game down. Let it just let that atmosphere really kind of breathe. Sure. Um, and so setting up those principles at the beginning of the game is really important because it's starting to get people into the vibe of what the experience is going to be like. So then you create your characters, you intro your characters to each other. All this takes like half an hour. Um, oh, that's not bad. It goes okay. pretty quickly. And you're constantly doing stuff as you're going. So there, there's the thing I really wanted to avoid was that that sinking feeling where there's just someone reading the rules out and you're all just forgetting half of it. And then you just start playing. Um, but the first few locations are, again, they're scaffolded. So the first location teaches you how to set up a scene with just a very, you're, you're outside of the zone, you're at the zone observation facility, you are sharing rumors. And that's a, that's a little trick that I, I, again, absolutely love, which is when you tell someone, share a rumor, what you're really saying is, it doesn't really matter what you say because it's not canonical. It's not canon. So it lowers the bar, but it also gives people a chance to learn to to take turns and to to start collaboratively storytelling. And then the next few scenes, there's three moves that you have to learn in the game. And each scene teaches you one of those moves in sequence, scaffolded. And then you're just in the game. And there's a few other points where the game has to teach you something, but it waits until that point and... Um, it uses tooltips so that as as you get to that point, you'll just see like everyone seeing the same thing on this kind of virtual tabletop. They'll see a tooltip that just uh, they again you read it out together and it shows you so you went to learn. Um, so then you're you're kind of you're just going at that point. You're going to different locations. You're telling stories. There's an interlude at a campfire where you uh, have a chance to just uh, take a break. It's uh, also a good 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 bathroom break time. Very important for games to plan in their restroom breaks. And then uh, and then you're into the second half of the zone, the dangerous part where everyone starts to die and mutate. And uh, after a little while, you make it to the center and all of the zone players have a chance to, to define the fate of the final survivor. And, and now, and I would assume it sounds like, you know, you, I'm walked through that process as well, right? So when, if, if my character dies, how I become the zone is, is stepped through and just yep. part, and part of a game, a part of play. That's nice. That, that's, that's, that's right. very, very nice. What, um, when you've seen people struggling with the game, where do they struggle? The biggest place where people struggle is, um, before the game starts, thinking of themselves as storytellers, uh, that's like a meta struggle. There, I also want to talk about just mechanically where people struggle, but um, yeah. I remember playing a game once. Uh, this was a, a pretty early play test, but the game was mostly in its final form. And it was with a few good friends, and one of them had invited his you know, much younger cousin. Uh, and she was, you know, he... <laughs> I love them to bits, but they did a horrible job just setting the stage. They, they, they didn't even mention it was a horror game. So <laughs> okay. I, um, I, I, I started explaining what the game was going to be. And I got to like, oh, this is kind of a horror game. And she was like, oh, I don't know. Like, oh, I don't know if I like horror. And, and I said it was a storytelling game. And she, she, she so like her confidence was just like 
really like rock bottom. She was just like, I'm a terrible storyteller. Like I'm scared of telling stories. And, and I, you know, and I asked her a several, a couple of questions. I just said, you see stranger things. And she, and she goes, Oh, Oh yeah. I love stranger things. And that's an important thing. Like a lot of people, when they think horror, they think, I don't know, like hostile, like those, those like the thing, the, the thing, <laughs> or they think like the saw series are just like horror means like some weird dude wandering around the neighborhood, slashing and torturing people. And horror is just so much broader than that. And you have control over what kind of horror you want to have. And so, so that first thing is like bridging it and just saying, Hey, like you like stranger things. You love stranger things. You told me you love stranger things. The game can just be stranger things. Can be a bunch of kids on bikes, you know, it can be really chill. And then the second thing is like about that thing of storytelling is um, the, the game sets up the, the stakes as you're not telling a story. You're really just answering questions. The story comes out of everyone answering questions together, sharing the load. But at no point are you going to be sitting there you know, it's like that nightmare, right? Of you're you you you're you're in the middle of a nightmare where you're giving a presentation naked, right? Like it's like that that thing. It's not that everybody's looking at you. It's not that. You know, don't worry about it. You're going to be supported if you want. You can just answer a question when it's your turn, and and mostly you can ask other players questions. Uh, the the scene cards have a few prompt questions that if if you if it's your scene, instead of having to tell story yourself if you don't want to you can just answer you know take those questions and ask it of the other players you know and making people comfortable with the 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 expectations is i think for new players probably the biggest barrier I bet. now where people get the 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 other thing within the game is is really time management that's i i would say the biggest game design challenge is that some players love 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 the genre and they're fantastic storytellers and they know their friends and you give them a prompt and they're just going for 30 minutes right like right i've timed out how long a turn takes in the game after so many of these play tests um and it's funny now i have the actual data from running it online and you know the the average turns like like 44 45 minutes i speed run the game in an hour you can do like a couple minute turns Mm-hmm. there's also some tables there in the first location and they just keep going. They just, they're, they're, they're so excited to be there. They just, they're just telling the story for like 30 minutes, 35 minutes. And you don't want to be too heavy handed with that, but that's where, um, even though the game has no facilitator officially and the game rules explicitly say, Hey, on average, a scene is like two to 10 minutes long, average of five, you know, just, don't keep it too long. It is helpful if you have a player who has the trust of the other players and is is able to do that. And so one of my design challenges is making sure that that player kind of gets the information they need to to guide the others. Um, yeah. But also some some players, like I've seen some games of the zone where folks just played for like six or seven hours and they just went really... They really took their time with it. And that's cool, too. And if that's whatever, yeah, if that's what everybody signed up for, and, and you kind of hinted at this, but I want to spend a little more time with it. You, you, you know, we talked a little bit about the helping the player that's struggling, helping the player that's that's not going to give the 30-minute monologue. 
But what can happen in story game, storyteller games is you can have a dominant player. You can have somebody who ends up taking over the table. So it, but it sounds like you've already got some things in place for that. The dreaded quarterbacker. Yes. That is, uh, the, that is the, the, the classic, classic story game problem. And I'll say just as an immediate caveat, and, and this is part of that whole discussion of, of safety and calibration tools, is if you are having that problem, there's only so much that the game can actually do to stop it. Correct. Like, yeah. You know what I'm it talking about, Craig. A, you, know, yeah. you know the drill on that one. <laughs> it, it, it tends to be a bigger problem than the game. Yeah. yeah. But, but there are a few things that you can do. So one of the things that the game gives is explicit moves. So there's three moves in the game. Take stock, which you can trigger at any time where everyone stops and each person adds like a tiny sensory detail or how one of their characters is feeling. So, you know, I say take stock. The person next to me goes, the air smells of honey. The next person goes, my character kind of feels kind of queasy. You know, they're uncomfortable. They're scared. The third person's like, oh, I hear this buzzing sound. Come back to the original player and suddenly you got all this extra information in the game that helps you go. Um, the second move is something's not right, which is designed to escalate. So when we're kind of in a scene and we're not quite sure where we want to go with it, any player can go, hey, something's not right. And they then add what they suspect might not be right or the rough area of it. And another player says, it's worse than that. <laughs> and completes a sentence. So, you know... We might be in this weird bog and we've just been walking for a while. Nobody's quite sure how to end the scene. And someone goes, something's not right. This water feels, feels like there's something in this water. And then some other player who has an idea goes, eh, it's worse than that. The water itself is turning to some kind of gelatinous creature that's rising about our ankles. Right? Like, man, like <laughs> suddenly the story's got legs. And then, yeah, and it, and, it, and it invokes that collaboration, and and precisely. it sounds to me like the the moves can stop the quarterback if need be. That's right. And here's the other funny thing: is if the quarterback triggers the move, what they're actually triggering is the other players doing stuff. So a lot of the time, a quarterback in a game like this, like the way that it would really play out, is that the, the, here's the thing to, to watch out for is. If you have a player who just has the narrative that they want to have in mind and they're kind of pushing other players around, um, that's a tricky one. And one of the things I think about a lot for us, you know, kind of growing as a scene is there's these things outside of the games. So like, how do we all level up as facilitators? One of the things that I find interesting about the LARP space in particular is it, it does a much more explicit job sometimes of, of, of expressing specific roles for players beyond just GM, right? So, for example, there's a... And you've got me on the Jason Morningstar games now, but there's a wonderful game called Underwater People, which is a support group for, you know, underwater creatures, formerly uh, like the, the Swamp Thing and, uh, you know, Ariel and, uh, the, you know, the, the, the god of the ocean who, for whatever reason, have been forced to take up mundane jobs on land and they're kind of unhappy with their lives, but so they meet at the support group. Um, and the game is literally staged as a support group. You got the chairs in a circle, uh, you have snacks on another table, and the game explicitly says to the players, one of you is the host, 
one of you is the facilitator and the host is doing host type stuff like setting out the snacks and the facilitator is basically facilitating the support group as they would a real support group. And I think you see that with some... I've seen even more conversation about this in GM full games of splitting up the GM, the person who actually schedules the evening, the person whose house it's hosted at. So I think there's 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 uh, outside of game stuff that can help support. But it's a big part of... Um, as I write out more content, so the core contents in the game really just with that design goal of people just go to the website and play, but I'm currently working on a guide and also working on eventually the, the, the print version. And I want to make sure that there's a lot of annotations and extra help in the margins uh, to, to help people learn um, as they go. Yeah. And it's funny, there'll, you know, there's a challenge going from analog to digital, but there's also a challenge going from digital to analog because it's, it's just a completely different set of tools. So guys, let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, at one point this thing didn't exist and now it's pretty damn baked. So let's talk to Raph about how that happened. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Are you a tabletop RPG player that is considering becoming a game master? Are you a veteran GM that is always looking for different ways to improve your games? GM Mastermind is an RPG podcast that tackles topics catering to the art of game mastering. But Craig, there are a lot of RPG podcasts that do that. Perhaps. But GM Mastermind has the brain trust. It's a guest panel made up of two to three game masters from different backgrounds and experiences that share their personal insights on a particular topic. This keeps the conversation fresh, diverse, and insightful from one episode to the next. So head over to gmmastermind.com or subscribe to GM Mastermind wherever you find your favorite podcasts. All right, so the interview that you're listening to right now is an interview that Raf and I recorded um, about a year and a half ago, and you know we've been waiting to release this episode to you know do it in conjunction with the Zone Kickstarter. Now, um, it's a lot's happened in this year and a half. One, we've had a chance to play the Zone several times on the channel and have had a really wonderful time with it. Um, the uh, Kickstarter is much anticipated, and of course, you'll be able to link to it down below, so when you scroll down. But I wanted to have Raf back on to add to this episode so we can actually talk about the thing. So Raf, it's good to have you. It's so great to be here. And it's really a time warp for everybody listening, because for them, nothing's changed. But for you and I, you know, more than a year has passed. So I guess the first thing to cover with everybody is, you know, based on our initial conversation before that people are listening to now and where the zone is today, um, what are some things that have changed? Um, there's two huge things. 
So one of them is the game has gotten bigger, which is just super exciting to me. And I can talk about a few of the ways. Um, and then the second thing is that the game has gotten uh, better, uh, which is another thing I want to talk about. The last year and a half, um, there have been, I just ran the numbers a couple of days ago, 500 expeditions into the digital version. And many of the folks who went in gave feedback uh, on the feedback form at the end. And so I've been able to just continue refining and tweaking, fixing typos, thinking about mechanics. Um, and so the game is really, it's as polished as ever. The second thing, which uh, I will be talking about a lot more as the Kickstarter approaches, is the final package has a bunch of new stuff in it. So if you've played the online version, it's got this tutorial, tutorialized intro that walks you through everything you need to do to play the game. And um, that's great. But over the course of the year, I've had so many comments from people about, well, can I adapt it in this way? Can I play it with this other setting? You know, can I make it a zombie apocalypse? Can I make it a weird undersea thing, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, inspired by, uh, I think Dialect was the first to do this, there's gonna be a tier of the Kickstarter that has a, a brand new book called The Book of Twists. And there are 15 authors, um, some of them outside the TTRPG space, like the amazing um, horror writer, uh, Chelsea Davis, and also some of our favorite names from the world of TTRPGs, new and old, um, just each writing scenarios. And I gotta tell you, <laughs> It's been such a joy seeing them come in. I gave only one piece of guidance, which is basically just push it as hard as you want. And so there's scenarios from a zone that is completely dark to a zone that happens of multi-layered timelines to a zone that is in line with the old roadside picnic of a crumbling Soviet city to a zone that is basically the, 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 the flesh pit um, to a zone that is, you know, a, 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 a kind of erotic B-movie studio um, <laughs> in the kind of 80s um, kind of gonzo tradition. And, and just, it, it's, it's just amazing. Well, it's got to be incre incredible, Raph, to have somebody else play with your, with your toys. Yeah, it's the best. I mean, I, I make tabletop RPGs for... The, the fundamental reason that I want people to be able to tell their own stories. I think, I, I don't even remember if we talked about this, but I think a lot about how before recorded music, if you wanted to listen to music, you had to play your own or have some kind of string quartet that you could hire or something like that. And so, you know, not that I'm ever going to win that competition, but sometimes, sometimes instead of uh, going to the movie theater, you just have to tell your own weird movie. Ideally, you do both. So just getting more people to do that is just awesome. And, and we've had so much fun playing playing with your toys wrap online. I think we've got three now separate instances of us streaming and playing the game. And uh, every single time and when it's over, people are like, wow, that was something. And every single time it's been new players, except for myself, of course. And, you know, us being able to walk through it. How are you going to how is the physical version going to mimic that that ability to sit down with all new people and just start playing? So you're going to have three books in total. There's the Book of Twists, and then there's two books that solve that problem. So the first one is uh, essentially the same thing that you have in the digital version. 
And the reason I can say that is because the one that came in the digital version was the extremely play-tested book that I had been developing for the physical version. So I had play-tested it with over 100 players uh, by March 2020 when development stopped on the physical version. And so what you saw in the digital version was an adaptation of something that had been kind of play-tested to death. And... Um, uh, and so it's just it's going to be that same same vibe. You pass the book around. The book is not aimed to be studied. It is meant to be a script for um, what I like to think of as almost like a table read. And then there's going to be a second book called the Book of Mutation, which mimics the the, the help that the game gives you, the kind of inline help. Um, and it's going to be just absolutely packed of everywhere there's a keyword in the game, like a beast or a mutation or um, an anomaly um, or a weird creature or anything, really, there's going to be a table. Um, I think that, that one's going to be kind of fun to use for any game. I can fully expect, hey, OSR folks, if you're listening, I've got some <laughs> tables for you. Um, and the reason all of these aren't just one big book, but instead they're just a bunch of smaller ones is because one i'm totally in love with that kind of mothershipy thought form factor it's just i mean i've got just behind me feed of these um we, we it's just it's just a wonderful form factor but the second reason is um i i want them to feel kind of small and accessible so that they're just hanging out on the table and if you're thinking oh i need some help i can just reach for it and and, and get to get to use it in live and a big book doesn't really feel like you can do it that way. You feel like you might get lost in it. Yeah, it, it give it a bit of a, um, an informal handout feel to it, which is exactly what you want at the table, right, for it to have that um, accessibility. So I completely get that. Now, um, having played the digital version, I got to tell you, I'm super excited about having the physical version. You know, for example, twice a year, I have a bunch of people meet me at a campsite. And we do camping for gamers for a week. And... I'm dying to play this game with them. You know, we've done a couple different storyteller games with them. Fiasco we've done, uh, For the Queen we've done. But, um, you know, this, this is different. And what I, I guess my question for you is, you know, in my head, I know it's going to feel different in in person with physical cards that we're picking up and, and that process. But you have played this with, you know, physical prototypes. Can you give us an idea of what the how different the experience is from playing the online digital version versus the physical? It's it's a little bit like the difference between telling scary stories over Zoom versus telling scary stories around a campfire. Um, if you have seen the wonderful artifact of COVID times uh, filmed entirely over Zoom with iPhones movie host, it's it's a movie about a bunch of people doing a medium seance, but over Zoom. And there's like a weird thing that happens and the spirit that they summon just kind of takes them all out. Uh, and it, it was filmed during COVID. So essentially it's a bunch of out of work actors trashing their own apartments um, as, as actually like pretty, pretty well rendered practical effects. It's a super fun movie. Uh, so you can have a spooky experience over Zoom. It's definitely possible. Um, but I'm actually really excited to just imagine you playing this around a campfire. That That's so mind-bogglingly awesome to me because that feeling of the fire being that, that the, the focal point 
and you can see each other's faces and there's just darkness around you. You don't know what's in that darkness. So you just huddle is exactly the feeling that you get when you play the game in person. And there's, there's guidelines for this, by the way, in the book, I, I should tell you about the ritual. So, um, I've experimented with a lot of different ways of lighting the game. I've tried an LED strip, I've tried candles. You can do the kind of 10 candle setup uh, and it works really well. But the single best way that I've found is glow sticks. And specifically, uh, I nerded out over every possible kind of glow stick. There's these like 10 inch chem light, you know, military grade, super bright ones that uh, are just right because one of them is enough to light the, the board in front of you so you can read. All of the game materials are designed to be super high contrast so they can be played in the dark. And um, the book has the following instructions. It says, keep the lights up, read the instructions, read the briefing, learn the rules with the lights on. You're, you're not in that world yet. And then you get to the moment uh, that says you are now entering the zone. And at that moment, you turn the page and the instructions say, take a bio break. You know, this is your last moment to grab a snack, that kind of stuff. When you are ready, turn the lights off with your glow stick in your hands and just sit in the dark until it becomes slightly uncomfortable and then snap the glow sticks. And it's the coolest moment, right? Well, and, and we have learned how important those rituals will be. Like, um, you know, uh, Avery does it all the time in, in, in her work where you've got these rituals, which you read them and you go, okay, whatever. But when you play and follow those very specific instructions and go through the rituals, it impacts. It impacts the mood. It impacts where you are and the feeling that you have. So for people that um, are going to go to the Kickstarter after listening to uh, this as well as the rest of the interview, um, can we talk about real quickly what they're going to see there as far as what's going to be available and um, what they can look forward to? Absolutely. So there's going to be three, maybe more tiers, but uh, here, here's what you'll get. Um, in keeping with the principles of the digital version, these principles have been at the heart of the game from the beginning. I want it to feel like something you can play right out of the box. And so it's in a box. Um, super inspired by thing, you know, games like Jiangxi, like Fiasco in a box, like Xeno Language. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited for games to play with the form factor that, you know, kind of board games have been keeping for so long. So it's a box. And in that box, there will be the, the books. In that, the lowest tier is just going to be the, 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 what am I calling it? The uh, uh, operation manual, I think I'm calling it right now. <laughs> The basic operation manual um, from the Federal Bureau of Coherence with the instructions to play it. <laughs> and you'll have uh, a deck of scene cards, a deck of location cards, a deck of not-so-easy cards. And then, because I want it to be playable out of the box, there's something that's new, which is a deck of character cards. There's nice. uh, seven archetypes, and they are illustrated by the... I'll just show you this. By the incomparable Eric Whalen. Like, just look at these. So Obviously, guys, you can't see these, but when you go to the Kickstarter, you're, you, this artwork is just amazing. Holy cow. Wow. Those are beautiful. And they're tarot-sized, which is awesome. Um, oh, that's exciting. They're astounding. And 
to mimic that feeling of being able to just pick a phobia and an obsession, because just to remind folks listening, character creation is just super easy. It's just an archetype like the scientist or the writer uh, with a broken life. And you're defined by the thing you fear most and by the thing you most want. And you can make your own. If you want, you can print out character sheets. That's totally fine. They're available. But there's going to be a deck of cards that have um, phobias and mutations on them. Sorry, phobias and obsessions on them. So you can just like mix and match. You know, I've played enough Jason Morningstar LARPs to know just how beautiful it is to be able to just put a few cards together and, and create a character from that. And so those are those are new. Those are not in the in the base game. And so then, how about some of the premium tiers? So the premium tier, the next tier, get two more books. Um, you get the book of mutation with all of these tables, and you get the book of twists with. I mean, I, I'm just so excited about it. I can tell. Um, <laughs> honestly, I just got to tell you, Craig. One of the funnest things has been um, getting the works in. And then figuring out which artist to pair each of the, oh, I bet. the writers with. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's, I think the finished product is going to be really fun to hold. And then um, most of the twists, the, the, the other piece of guidance they give the writers is they can add a few locations, a few character archetypes, basically a few of any of the cards in the game. And so um, with that tier, there's just another kind of blister pack or whatever is the, the appropriate way. If I'm still costing out the Kickstarter, but it'd be wonderful to have that experience of that kind of like foil pack of, uh, you know, magic, magic cards. You're like, oh, like <laughs> who's in here? <laughs> so th- th- there's, um, I haven't, I haven't, they're, they're, they're still coming in, so I don't have the final count, but with that, you've still got like a whole other set of locations. For example, a, a couple of the twists are, the kind of house of leaves stuck in a house kind of things. You've got a whole set of locations that are, you know, the hallway, the kitchen, the basement, that kind of stuff. And there's a whole set of new characters. So there's just a bunch more content. And then there's another tier that just no one should order. It's ridiculous. It, it, it just, it makes no sense, but, um, show you, I'll show you my, my prototype. So the zone is obviously pretty hazardous. If you've seen the trailer, you know that it's it's best contained in an appropriate case. Oh, that's amazing. So guys, he's got one of those like military grade plastic cases with the latches and everything. And oh, that's cool. And you can carry it all in there. That's neat. Yeah. You know, the case will, of course, have a Federal Bureau of Coherence um, <laughs> stamp on it and uh uh, and, and instructions to not open it. And um, I'll also supply the those particularly fancy glow sticks. It's it's a ludicrous tier. Nobody should get it. But, <laughs> but how many are going to be available? Do you know? Have you decided yet? Uh, how many people can order I'll it? see how many people can order it. <laughs> I'll see how many people want it. Oh, that's fantastic. Don't, don't, um, don't, don't back this tier. <laughs> He's made it it's very, ridiculous. very clear. It, it makes me happy when you talked about that book of twists. I, one of the things I was going to ask you is, you know, well, you know, do we have to work out of the book, print our own cards? I love the fact that there's a tier where I can get the cards for that so I can really take full advantage of it in the in the total experience. So that's great. So, Raph, we're going to return everybody back to our original interview so that they can finish that out. But uh, it was really good catching up with you again. Craig, it's been a pleasure. And and also, I got to tell you, thanks for continuing to play the game. I've I've loved watching the games and 
your crew are just wonderful storytellers. They do. They really are, man. I'm so lucky. Um, you know, I've been lucky with everything that we've run on the channel. I just end up with a cast and a group of people that just that just kill it. And I, I got to tell you, like um, of all the games that I've run, more often than not, the patrons are like, so let me know when you're running the zone again. <laughs> if you're listening, so it'll be back. If you're listening to the podcast, you haven't listened to the actual plays. It's it's a great time. Oh, so I'm glad I'm glad you like it, Rev. That means a lot to us. All right, guys, back to the regular uh, interview. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. <laughs> no one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. So we, we talked about the Burning Man. We talked about, you know, kind of your introduction to storytelling games um, and, you know, you walking away from that experience. And you know, I think the first thing I need to understand, Raph, is, you know, I've walked away from games and gone, oh, man, that was great. Like that, like that kind of changed me a little bit. I've never played a game like that before. And what I didn't do is say, I'm going to now make a game. But that's what happened to you is that you went into design mode and where, where did that come from? Where did that drive to not just go, wow, that was a great game that changed things for me to, uh, you know, I need a piece of paper. Oh man, you're taking me back, man. <laughs> I love this question. I love thinking about that moment. Well, the funny thing for me is I came to games from really two angles, from the improv angle, where I was used to getting up on stage and telling stories. Or right. Really not even telling stories, just, just being stories. Just, yeah. having, just yeah. having these stories just kind of appear fully formed. Yep. And and there's this thing in improv, it's called uh, the idea of a, a blackout improv, which is when you're in a scene and you you kind of, you just, you just wake up a couple minutes later and you're like, what just happened? Mm-hmm. It's it's when you have a scene that is so resonant with yourself, with the audience, you have such a good connection with the other players that suddenly you're just on autopilot and you don't even know what you're doing anymore. It's just, it's just, it's, 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 I mean, it's just such a special feeling. Yeah. It's incredible. And so I had that in the back of my mind and I, and I, I just, that feeling is so good. And I also came at it from the angle of, of UX design, interface design. And 
in UX design, what you're constantly thinking about is what's the experience you want people to have? And if you're designing, I don't know, like a checkout flow, the experience is I checked out and I didn't have to think too hard about it. And that is the process of asking yourself, what kind of experience do I want someone else to have? And thinking, how do I deploy all the tools that I have, like the right buttons in the right place, the right screens, the right you know scaffolding, content, all that kind of stuff to help people be successful? Really merge with the storytelling side because I just really wanted to share that experience. Like I, 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 I saw on one hand what it feels like to tell a story, and I saw on the other hand all these tools for how you, you know, let people have an experience that they create themselves. And, and I just, it was honestly inevitable. Like I, I just, I couldn't not do it. It was, I've been making games for so long that as soon as I got into the storytelling game mentality, I mean, it was just, it just became the next kind of game that I, I wanted to make because um, I, you know, I love video games. You know, I've probably put 700 hours into Spelunky 2 during the pandemic. Um, and, and, and I think they create just amazing experiences of, of mastery and of competition yep. of, you know, manual dexterity, but there's just something about telling a story together that, uh, I mean, we're both here, right? We're both here. We, we both, we get it, right? Yeah, the listeners already know because they've heard me say this. But they know. I, they I, know. I, I, you know. I love miniature games. I love board games. I love card games. But role-playing games, and this includes storytelling games, is the apex of gaming. It is the best experience. And um, I, it has been my experience, and it's true for me, and I've talked to other people about it, people that play all kinds of games, who say, hey, what was your favorite gaming experience? It always tends to be an RPG. You know, it's not, uh, I rolled two sixes. Um, you know, playing Malifaux um, or, you know, Warhammer 40K or, or Catan, and I was able to trade for wood. Um, it's always, you know, all right, so I, I was a druid, <laughs> right? And that's how, that's how the, the, their favorite story goes. Um, so you... Catan is the worst. <laughs> it's not the worst. <laughs> I just, I, I would, I would, I would rather, I would rather just silently hang out with a group of friends just rolling dice for no reason and not talking to each other for two hours than play Catan. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's a great game. Don't get me wrong. The worst is a strong word, though, Ralph. <laughs> it's a good prompt, though, for me to tell my part of the story. <laughs> You're good at this. Um, all right. So you, as a designer, right, and somebody who was a designer before they started gaming, right? I mean, it's part of what you do is a job. It's your job for crying out loud. You know, after you've played a couple storyteller games and you set, you sit down and you say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make my own. The first thing you have to figure out is where's my space, right? So I'm not going to go make fiasco. That's already been made. I'm not going to go, you know, make archipelago. That's already been made. What, what was the initial goal or design space that you said, this is where, this is at least where I'm going to start. This is where I think my game's going to live. And, 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 and that's where you headed. And of course that might move, but I'd be curious to know what that first space was. So the first storytelling game that I made was, um, uh, when I, not long after I first met Randy and we had all these experiences with, with like I said, you know, Fiasco, Microscope, a bunch of other, um, uh, of other games, there, there was, there weren't as many card-based storytelling games, but we both had this interest in plot. We, we both, the, the, you know, now that I've had 
more of a chance to study it. I know how limiting this was, but you know, this is like a decade ago. We were obsessed. Like so you many, didn't know what the hell you were doing. so many young designers with the, the hero's journey and the monomyth, all that kind of stuff and save the cat and Robert McKee's story. And, you know, we're just like jamming on that stuff and talking about screenwriting and story structure. And I strongly believe that there's, that, that those are, are very limited and formulaic ways to look at story and people have kind of really overblown the hero's journey. But uh, the thing that was exciting to us was this idea of, well, this story structure has can have these standardized beats and the first game that we made was was a card game uh, it's called platypus and um, <laughs> it's it's the worst name we <laughs> we literally we we were talking about what what should we not call this game and you, you're right the code Catan, name, but Catan's a good name. <laughs> Catan, even Catan is rather than Plotty Fest. Uh, you know that thing where you come up with a name and you go, we should definitely not have the final game be called its code name. And then it just It sticks. just happens. That's really great. So cheesy. So cheeseball. And it was kind of weird. You know, it didn't really fit any particular type of game like it's still to this day just like a little bit weird mm-hmm. uh there are a bunch of character it was all just uh playing card size and you'd end up with there was a, a board of cards that would walk you through the different steps of a story it's all very kind of formulaic stuff uh, but also these like prefabricated character cards or just like i just sketched a bunch of characters and so we had this um and we play tested it with total non-story gamers uh, the goal was just, can you tell a kind of a neat little movie story in half an hour and kind of worked for that? It was just, uh, we just tested it with like our roommates and just random friends. And in the back of my mind, ever since then was just this love of, of card-based mechanics. And, and keep in mind, I got Archipelago in the back of my mind. I right. got this game in the back of my mind. And I mean, cards had been in the back of my mind, quite honestly, much longer than that, too, in terms of design patterns, you know, all the different ways of of, of, of taking little bits of information and breaking down a story or a character or something like that into little chunks. Instead of having to read a book, just using the natural form factor of cards to deliver information in like these bite-sized ways. It's a UX. <laughs> it's a great UX, you know, it's so powerful. And, you know, you, you see, I mean, Alex Roberts for the Queen, right? Just absolute mastery of that format in in um in in its um in its form and it's you know you're, you're, it's really interesting too seeing all the games based on tarot that have been kind of coming out in the last year or two but cards rolls in the back of my head and i after <laughs> platypus love saying it <laughs> after platypus i jammed on a bunch of small games i i kept making little video games um but it wasn't until that moment, like that 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 evening playing Love in the Time of Seath, um, which if you haven't heard of it, it's basically um, Matthew Halter and 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 Jason Morningstar collaborated on this game, which is built on top of Archipelago. The goal was Archipelago is totally freeform. The goal was to create a more guided story on top of it. So it's this Viking blood opera where there's the, you know, the dying king who used to be a very strong warrior, but now is about to lose his empire. So he's marrying his daughter to the, you know, grand vizier of some other uh, neighboring state who's kind of evil. And he's supported by the witch, the Seath, uh, the Seath Kona. 
um, and uh, has assigned uh, a young knight to protect the the daughter. Of course, the knight is in love with the daughter. The daughter is oblivious to the knight. The daughter is under the tutelage of the witch. The witch is supporting the king. The king wants the daughter to be okay and wants the marriage to happen. The daughter doesn't want to marry the other guy. And also, the knight is a werewolf. And it's it's all set up so that everyone is going to just... <laughs> I mean... It's called a blood opera for a reason. Right. It's it's absolute chaos and it's brilliant. And I played it and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Just the way that it had balanced the freeform nature of Archipelago's Not So Easy cards with this guided story and scaffolding for the players with locations, character sheets. I just, I mean, I was obsessed. Just obsessed. Like, I, I, I couldn't get it out of my head. I had to, like... I, I think you'll get this, you know, as, as someone, as a creator, but sometimes you just have to make something. Yeah, no, I totally get it. I totally get it. It was wonderful. And, um, you know, like I said, like I was coming out of a very stressful period of my life. I had, you know, put a bunch of stuff behind me and I was reconnecting with the world of games after yeah. leaving it behind for a few years. And I just, I just, just took to it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't stay away. That's I really great. couldn't stay away. And was it, in your mind, always going to be fantasy horror? I knew from the start that I wanted it to be an Annihilation-style experience. Annihilation was a touchstone. You know, I'd, I'd seen the movie, I'd read the book. I loved things of that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, a fan of Roadside Picnic, which you could really argue is like one of the, the kind of founding books of, of this. If, just for your audience, Roadside Picnic is it's a, it's a Russian book uh, by uh, Boris Narkady Strugatsky. It's about... Uh, these weird zones appear on the on Earth, like a bunch of them scattered around from one day to the next, and they're full of strange, incredibly dangerous anomalies and also just astonishing artifacts like perpetual motion devices and batteries and things like that. Um, one, sorry, one tiny tangent, if you'll permit me, is Please. the reason it's called Roadside Picnic is because halfway through the book, there's two scientists who are having a conversation about what the heck is these zones? Where do they come from? Oh, look at that. And, and, you know, there's trading theories back and forth, you know, and one of them goes, well, look, let's say it's aliens, right? Ima- and, and, and they're talking, you know, they're like, why, why did they contact us? If it really is aliens, like, why did they say something? Why did they just create these zones and leave and like leave all this, this like incredibly powerful technology? Um, and, and when the scientist goes, look, like, let's imagine that um there's a there's a road trip people are driving across america a group of friends you know route 66 and they decide to stop for a picnic and just on the side of the road they get some food out playing some music and the car radio drink some beers and they get back in the car after a little bit of a good time they leave a bit of trash behind because they're just you know <laughs> hippies on an adventure or whatever it's written in the 60s you know and then let's say that you're an ant and you're just wandering around the desert in the middle of Arizona or wherever Route 66 goes through, um, everywhere and nowhere, <laughs> and you come across this can. If you're this ant, you have no conception of the technology behind this simple can. Right. It just seems like the most advanced thing that you've ever come across in your life. Cannot comprehend it. But to the people on the road trip, it's just trash. Right. Hence the name of the book, Roadside Picnic. Yeah, it's, it, that's it's, interesting. It's a lovely idea. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I knew I wanted to have that experience. And, and that, 
And that's actually really important to, to, to me as a, as a designer. I'm, I'm the kind of designer that I like to have a really tight kernel of the game experience that I'm looking for. So for example, knowing at the beginning, I know I want it to be this theme of magical horror. I know I, I want to balance beauty and horror. I want people to be telling these weird dreamlike sequences. I don't want to have mutation. And I know that I want only one player to make it to the middle. Right. Um, go, right? Like once I, that, that, that core came together really fast. And then it was just the process, the, the design process of getting it to really sing. So, um, I, you know, you see on the site that it's two to five players, two to three hours, and zero prep. Those are two big things that you make very clear at the beginning. Was that, were those design goals or is that where the game ended up? So let's start with number of players. Number of players, the first prototype of the game was, in a lot of ways, a rescan of Love in the Time of Seath. Um, that w- that gave me this the the structure to create the first version. I knew I wanted to do the you know, the, the the archipelago style thing. Um, Love and Time of Seath has this idea of character car. Uh, sorry, of uh, of um, locations. Uh, it, it did them in a slightly different way, but that, that I, I just kind of applied very similar annihilation style things. And the character sheets were very much based on it. And Love and the Time of Seath needs to have five players because it's set up so that that intricate web of everyone murdering each other is is really it, it starts to break down if you play with fewer than five you kind of can but no fewer than four um so the number of players was pretty stable at the beginning and i tried going up i tried going down and i discovered through through play tests that the sweet spot was really four players um I started discovering things like if there's more players, I need to add more locations. If there's fewer players. What's the sweet spot for the number of locations yep. where it feels right? Um, I do want to adapt it to have explicit single player rules because there's no reason you can play as a single player story sure. game. And yeah. I've been seeing play, people play it actually that way. Um, but the real balance is the more players you have, the longer it takes. And at some point, it you, you have to be pretty conscious about the the setting the right expectation because if you had and and here's the thing i think this is a, a very common thing with gmless games because gmless games spread out all the responsibilities um and it's actually the same with board games you do end up in that situation where if too much time passes and it's not your turn you start slightly losing attention and um i've played games with six people definitely worked it took many many hours and it was a lot of fun but you could definitely see that it was pushing at the edges of what was a good idea you can play you can play an rpg with 10 players you can play an rpg with two players you can play Catan with two players you can play Catan with six players but every single game has a sweet spot and then that may not be specific to the game it's often is specific to the game and the group right and then there's just always that ideal number that that just works for that group um and and you've kind of answered what my next question was is what is what do you think the sweet spot is and it sounds like four players you think four players just kind of hits tones yeah and and let me let me say a little bit of why because this might be useful for your listeners from a design perspective one thing i think about a lot um and and i started thinking about this when i was doing improv is it's because i'm very excessively nerdy but the information theory of what's going on so let's say you got a group of improvisers so 
the the classic long form improv style is called the Herald. It's a 20, 25 minute play. It's got three acts. There's this group game at the beginning where everyone organically creates kind of a theme. Then you do three short scenes, you do an interlude, three more short scenes, another interlude, and then you kind of wrap it up in a couple more scenes. Now, one of the things in improv is that idea of if it's in your head, it doesn't exist. And the structure of the Herald is designed so that you do these scenes, but then you come back together for these interludes where everyone is doing something together that give the story the opportunity to, to very kind of subtly, because there's no one planning it, so it can't happen, you know, nobody can shove it in a certain direction, but it gives it a chance to coalesce in a certain direction for people to kind of figure out what, what's, what's happening. What, what are we doing, yeah. What's happening, right? And in Jamless Games, you've, you've got the same kind of dynamic where if you're trying to keep a certain direction for the story, you have a bunch of tools to make it happen. You've got the the mechanical structure, you can be very explicit about the arc, like the fiasco tilt in the middle is a great example of that, where, you know, in the middle, you kind of, you switch, you're succeeding, now you're failing. Yep. Um, and you know that's going to happen at the beginning. And what what I started discovering through all these playtests were, were the boundaries where the game is naturally magical realist in that Maybe you're going from a forest to a mall to a military facility. And that's totally fine in the zone because the zone is supposed to be this place that is warping reality. Right. So it makes perfect sense when you're in there, even though it's got this dreamlike quality of why are these two things in the same place? And that's intentional. Um, but you have to have this balance where if you have too few players then you're suddenly you're doing quite a lot of work storytelling wise each player is having to come up with more stuff right and it's just hard to do that if you have too many players then that magical realist everything kind of being crazy can go too broad and instead of players building on each other's phobias and obsessions and and some kind of narrative naturally emerging out of the, these things people are trying to do it can start to, uh, to 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 lose steam. There's this wonderful concept of criticality that also comes from the LARP world, which is uh, if you think about like a nuclear explosion, right? That's an example of like a super critical reaction. Like you put a certain amount of energy, you get more out than you put in. And subcritical is like you know that feeling when you're just kind of having a conversation and it peters out. Yeah. It's like that. So you want to be critical. You want to be in the middle where like you're putting in energy and you're getting good energy out. But if you have too much energy, then stuff just goes off the rails. Right. And if you have too little, then suddenly you're seeing these long silences and people aren't really listening to each other and they're not really aware of what the other characters are doing. And four people is like a real sweet spot. But if you get to five or six, what you really need is for players to be extra good listeners or, or to, to, to be extra good uh, turn takers. And if you have fewer, it still works. Yep. It still works great. But it works even better if they are lovers of the genre and they're naturally kind of more uh, loquacious. Do you feel, Raph, that uh, the zone is fully baked right now? Yeah. Um, and when I say fully baked, I mean, here's what I'll say. It's like a donut is fully baked. You still have a whole lot of toppings on top of it. And okay. I have such yeah, a long more, list of there's things. There's more that will come to it. But in, in its current, in its current yeah. state, it, it's baked. So that being the case, we've got... We've got the website where we can go and we can play the game mm -hmm. right now. 
Um, I want to get a sense of what's coming next. Now, you've already talked about creating, you know, fiasco type, you know, supplements for it. But um, let's talk about the physical game. Of course. So here's an interesting story here, which is, um, and this is kind of implicit in our conversation, but the game started as a physical game. Right. Um, the first prototype was me just like printing stuff out at the office printer and just, you know, chopping it up with some scissors. And it was a physical game until the fateful date of March 2020. Yep. I had run it a couple of times in Tabletopia using Google Slides as character sheets um, because I was, you know, the streaming culture is rising and I wanted to play with a bunch of folks who weren't in the same room. Uh, so, I, you know, I knew I wanted to support that, but my intention was to release it as a physical game. I had, um, you know, they're, they're just off screen, but I had in March 2020 just printed out five playtest packs for a very baked, almost final version. Wow. Um, and my, when I say almost final, I mean, like, it's the same content that's in the, the virtual game. The All of the card content was finalized. Uh, I had a, a, a kind of Ashcan draft of the, the manual, which was very baked. Uh, it had been through a ton of playtests. Uh, it just didn't have art. It was it, it didn't have a lot of the ancillary text I wanted to have and kind of fleshing out of a bunch of the stuff um, in there that just adds mood. And But it had the core and it was, it was very tuned. And I had done a bunch of remote play tests where I'd sent people the, the manual and the card so I knew that the game worked. I was about to submit the Kickstarter and then, you know, lockdown. Yeah. And my playtest packs are still on the desk over here. I got crushed motivationally. I just, I couldn't bring myself to keep working on it because yeah. I mentioned playtesting earlier from, you know, from my experience as UX designer. But what I didn't mention is that it's also the way that I motivate myself. Like probably a lot of us, list, a, lot of, a lot of your listeners and a lot of people out there, I am a champion procrastinator. Yep. There's nothing like knowing you got a playtest in the books. And suddenly feeling like I couldn't do that. Like I didn't have a feedback loop. Right. And also maybe I was putting people at risk. Like if I did a Kickstarter, I just the idea of, of being like, hey, gather your friends for this three hour, super intimate, breathing the same air experience. Just the, I couldn't the, do it. It. it just didn't have the, the, the timing wasn't right. And you had a sense yeah. of that. Um, so at what point, Raph, did you, you know, dig yourself up from that and say, you know what, I'm going to make a digital version of this? Later in the year, I mean, it happened really at kind of the beginning of the summer, because obviously when the, when the pandemic started, we didn't know how long it would last. So at first, I was um, I was working with a few artists, getting a few commissions finished, and I still in my mind, in the back of my mind, I was like getting them finished, kind of still work on the book. My motivation slowly tanked. Um, when the pandemic really hit, when it became really obvious that this would be that we'd be in it for the long haul, at least a year. Um, that is when I started thinking about first Roll20, Tabletopia. I, I just wanted to keep having something to work on because I, I just love this project and I, I wanted it to, to be out your there. Your mental right? health, it sounds like you need that, Raph. Yeah. And also, you know, I, I playtested enough times. I had a, a bunch of friends and playtesters breathing down my neck and being like, hey, we want to play this with our friends. Well, yeah, that's my know? game. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And um, I, so I have a, a background in, I, I can code, 
for the web pretty well. Um, I'd never made something of this scale before, but I I was pretty fast at a bunch of the prototyping. And so um, I first brought the game into Tabletopia again. I brought it into Roll20. And the first thing that hit me was these are just the worst parts of the game. Like moving cards around on a table is not the point of the game. Uh, all the things I can do easily are the things that basically break the game. Yep. And I said to myself, okay, well, maybe I'll just build a prototype. So I built a first prototype and I, I, I wanted to have the atmosphere. I wanted to have the, that kind of glowy sense. Like one of the best things about playing it in person, there's a ritual that I have for it, which is um, to have players get a glow stick for each player, get one of those big ones, you know, the ones that from the, like the, the ones you put on the side of the road, if your card is a breakdown, Sure. each player gets a glow stick, do the rules explanation with the lights on. And once you've created your characters, go into the restroom, you come back, you're ready to play. Grab your glow stick and then turn the lights off and just sit in the dark until it gets uncomfortable. <laughs> and then at some point when it gets uncomfortable enough, crack your glow sticks and you see them like they crack, they start lighting up. It's just, it gives me chills. It was, it's just my, it was my favorite ritual for, for getting people into that magic circle. And, and so when I first tried building it, obviously that's completely missing from Roll20 or Tabletopia. Yep. So I built a prototype that was all about that. You you had the glowing lights. You had that sense of being in this kind of more atmospheric state. I spent ages trying to uh, give the cards that kind of Hearthstone style feel where you like drag them around. There's particle effects and everything. And I got a month into that and I was just like, man, this is getting really complicated. <laughs> and two, again, I have spent a ton of time building all the stuff that's not good about the game. Because in a very literal sense... You've got your decks on the table. You got the spiral of cards. If I give you the free form ability to just move cards around the table, literally all you can do with that is mess up the game. Exactly. F it up. <laughs> yeah, the cards are the cards are just a, a means to an end. They're a way of structuring the information. So it was about that that time, like maybe like those like July August. Um, Randy, um, as you can see, like Randy's a really close collaborator of mine. So you know he was working on Story Synth. And um, he was building it in a, a web technology called Vue, Vue.js, which is really lovely, really easy to learn. Um, if, if you need to have a little bit of a background in JavaScript and HTML and CSS, but like it's probably the easiest framework to, out there. And I was seeing the stuff that he was doing and he was walking me through how, how he built that first prototype of story synth. And I said to myself, this pandemic's not going anywhere. This would be a cool project. I need stuff to do. I'm just stuck at home. And I decided to em embark on this challenge. And, and the challenge I set myself was make a game that runs itself, that teaches itself, and that uses all these web technologies to like build in all the scaffolding so that at any point, like my, my dream for the game is literally anytime you're stuck, you could, there's something in it that can help you, which is, again, which all things that virtual tabletops uh, are not optimizing for. They're optimizing for being generic platforms that are basically replicating what's happening on the tabletop without without adding that next layer yet. Yet. I say yet because I see a lot of people doing cool stuff here. Yeah, it's interesting what's happening with the, with the technologies there. So um, so for my code monkeys out there, what, what is, what is the, the digital version built off of? It's built in... The front end is Vue.js, Okay. And uh, which uh, for 
if 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 y'all are slightly technical, so we like React. It's a framework for putting together um, a fairly complicated website that has interactivity um, and can have a lot of um, moving parts. And then the back end is built on a wonderful technology called Firebase, which is a real-time database that lets you easily share state amongst a bunch of different people in different places. Nice. So, for example, it's uh, the source of truth for the whole game. It's uh, like your collaborative multiplayer cursors that you might know from, say, Google Docs. Mm -hmm. um, that's where all of that is happening and being synced across all the players. Got it. So um, have has the possibility of the Kickstarter re reignited now that we're hinting at potentially being post-pandemic? Absolutely. Um, I'm very excited about it, and I'm working towards it. Um, I will pick the exact announce date um, over the, the next, next few months, but um, like any good horror Kickstarter, I would expect something around October, around Halloween, after the summer. When things are starting to get dark <laughs> and uh, the sun is setting a little bit earlier. And my plan is to keep improving the digital version because oh, there's just so I, there's so many cool things that I, I am going to bring to it. Uh, really, just just for the fun of it. People are playing it. I'm getting feedback and... I, I, I want to keep making the experience better, more polished. Like I'm hoping that it can be a, a, just an amazing entry point for someone who, who, who just wants a really guided experience into, into storytelling games. Like I, I'm, I'm, I really want to push the boundaries and explore just how much scaffolding and education and facilitation a game can do for itself. Um, and the other thing is I want to explore this idea of, of content packs of, of giving people more guided experience and, um, I'm hoping that the digital version can be a way of playtesting that for what do I put in the physical version? Yep. Um, so expect a Kickstarter, hopefully around October. Don't, Very don't hold cool. me to that. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's, it, it's, it's going to be very cool. Very atmospheric. One of the things, um, that I have been contemplating and I, and I purposely have not done this till I talk to you is I have considered, I've got, um, I've got a Twitch channel, YouTube channel. I've got, I don't know, about 15, 15 cast members that I work with, right, on various different games. One of the things I consider doing is without a whole lot of run-up, just picking three other ones and the four of us live stream, hop on the zone, and let's try this freaking thing out. Um, is that a terrible idea? Um, or do, are you confident that, like just four people can just hop on there and and just work through it and and start freaking playing. It's a great idea. I mean, that's okay. you you would not be the first. There have been, Craig. There have been. It's redacted, but there have been countless expeditions into the zone. <laughs> no one's made it out yet so far, but but yeah, I mean, you 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 wouldn't be the first. Um, there's there's been a a, a few streams already, and um, one of the coolest things about. This was one that the big challenges of launching a game in this pandemic in the virtual world was, um, what does it mean to launch something, yeah. right? When it's it just, what do I do? I'm, I'm just kind of turning this website on and saying, hey, please come to my website. <laughs> Go on a stupid so, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> when um, um, when I, was, I was talking with a friend of mine, uh, a, a absolutely brilliant human and community manager called Elliot Miller is also a game, game designer. And uh, he came up with this idea of doing a discord launch party. Interesting. Um, 
So uh, it was all free, but used, uh, I um, had the you know ticketing and people came, and I set up a bunch of of, of zones of tables, uh, each with their own voice channel and uh, chat channel, and people came and there were five games just kind of popped off. Just people just kind of did cool. their own thing. Um, I wasn't, I, I was just wandering around watching people tell weird stories, but, uh, it, it's that, that was the goal, you know, people come, they play and it just, it just kind of works. And, uh, as far as voice and video, uh, that's something you have to bring with you to the site. Yep. Uh, use uh, zoom or Google meet or there's a million ways you know. to do it. So yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. All right. So, uh, we're recording this, um, just so everybody knows, we're recording this in June, uh, and as everybody, my listeners already know, I record, uh, unfortunately, Raph knows I book way ahead, and my listeners know that I release, you know, record way ahead, uh, so it's very possible when you're listening to this that we're, we're approaching, um, or there might be some announcements that have already happened, and I think it's exciting to, to learn that we've got things not only for this, but for, you know, add-ons later. Um, now, in your mind, you may not be able to answer this, Raph, or you may not want to, which is fine. Is it is the Kickstarter going to be just for the physical product, or is it going to be Kickstarter for the digital? Or, like, in your mind, and again, you may not know the answer to this, what, what's the, what what do I get if I back a Kickstarter? What are my options? Do you have a sense of that yet? Yeah, I've, I've, um, I, I've given it a lot of thought, and for me, the digital version will always be free. Um, it's a true labor love for me it's also a way that um i can introduce people to the game it's a way for me to explore kind of new new frontiers and the physical version people have asked you know like how do we support you and and i say to them there'll be a when, day there'll be a day <laughs> when when you get the kickstarter um you know get a get a copy because i think the two experiences are very complementary and Look, I love playing games, whether it's digital or where it's around the tabletop. Um, the thing that's most exciting to me, and this is, you know, as a UX designer, thinking about how do you take something like a physical tabletop and, and think like really deeply about what are the things that make it awesome? Well, and what's happening there, yeah. What's happening? What's, what's the stuff that's happening that's not obvious that's happening, that's invisible, but it's, 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 it's what makes up it's the material or the experience. How do I, how do I take that and, and replicate it? I, I mean, that challenge is, oh my God, you can tell how excited I get about it. And so it's kind of my playground. And cool. I also really, really want to support folks who are, you know, they're playing remotely. They're playing, they're not around the table, you know? Um, but I, I will tell you, Rafa, it makes me excited to know because like, you know, one of the things that I enjoy doing is I have twice a year, I have a group of people that go camping and we have camping for gamers, we call it. And it would bum me out if I got on here and started playing the zone. It was like, this is cool as hell, but we can't play at the campsite. But it sounds like that that problem might be solved. It will. And and look, I can't replicate exactly the same kind of scaffolding in the paper version as I can the digital version, obviously. Sure. But it's really designed to guide you through the experience in almost exactly the same way. And in fact, one of the things that made it possible to to, to build it out so quickly was actually having something that was really thoroughly playtested, it would have been a nightmare to figure out the game and build the game at the same time because it would have been, it would just have been a total mess because on paper, you know, you change a few words, but if you're needing to change game mechanics in a digital version of a game, it's, uh, it can be a, a ton of work. So is, is it possible for you to, 
Obviously, you're not going to have the voice and video of the story, but is it possible for you to go and look at games that were played? I can I can see the final mission report. Got it. This was something that was pretty important to me was exactly what you're saying, right? You put this thing out there and you kind of you kind of want two things to happen. One of them is as a game designer, it feels nice to know, hey, is anyone playing this thing? And as a player, and I think this is actually some of the potential of digital games, it's really neat to have an artifact that you've created by playing the game. So after you play the game, there's a kind of a, a, a URL you can go to and it's just the report and it shows you a map. It's got literally a report of, you know, here was the, the it, it's it's a frame story. I totally saw this from Annihilation, but it's the the report of the interview of the survivor or oh, that's whatever cool, they dude. are. And it's like, you went into the, well, you, what was your phobia? What was your obsession? How did it go? What was your final wish? And then it has a report on like when all the players died. That's cool. Um, so it's, it's actually really fun to go and look at those and to see people sharing those on Twitter. Um, and there's also a link to a forum you can give me feedback. And so I've literally got like dozens of people who've been kind enough. Um, and one of the things in the feedback forum is as I ask them things like, you know, hey, what was a cool mutation that happens? And I have just a bunch of really weird little microfiction from these just amazingly creative players who That's come into cool. the game. So um, obviously, yeah. uh, for those listening, if you scroll down right now and look at the show notes, you're going to see a link uh, so that you can go play the zone, which I know you're excited to after listening to here. But Raph, if people want more Raph, where else can they go? Go to laughingkaiju.com. Um, the zone is the is my labor love, my big project, but I also love making weird small LARPs and RPGs. So I've got a bunch of other small stuff there, uh, smaller stuff. And you can find me on Twitter at Raftamico, where I tweet about mostly just kind of design stuff, game stuff, weird horror stuff, and uh, and uh, just whatever else comes to mind. Chaotic so, uh, stream of Raft. <laughs> last question for you. Um, and it can't be a Morningstar game, and it can't be a Raft <laughs> game. I want to know what game are you excited about right now? Is there something that you've been playing or dying to play that uh, has got you pretty stoked? Oh, man. Um, let me think for a second, because there are so, so many cool things. So it's really around. weird for those of you listening. He just turned all the lights off and he's hitting a glow stick. So I don't know what the hell's going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am, and this is I am just going to be a total cliche right here, but I am... Super, super excited for Campfire, which by the time you are uh, listening to this, will have finished its Kickstarter. Um, I'm not familiar is, with Campfire. What's Campfire? Yeah, Campfire is a, it's a game by World Champ Games. It's uh, it, it's kind of a, a weird uh, Tales from the Crypt type generator of uh, strange, bizarre horror stories. It's just so completely up my alley that i can't wait to <laughs> to play with it it's got like cool play mat and cards and coins and stuff like that Very i'm pretty cool. excited there's there's a game called spindle wheel um which has been in development for a really long time and it's a it's very inspired by tarot and that you have these cards each with very evocative words and and themes each card has like a, a top and a bottom you can flip it to get like a, a slightly different twist on it Interesting. and 
it guides you through storytelling by giving you different layouts. So you might take um, a certain set of cards and put them in a cross or put them in a pyramid or, you know, in a line. And it's very kind of slightly abstract, slightly hackable. Mm. It, it asks a little bit more of players and that it's, it's, a, it's not very literal. It's very kind of one step removed. You're, you're almost divining the story, uh -huh. but it's a really, really interesting space. I think it's interesting. Um, I cannot wait to get my hands on it. It's been in very open development for uh, for quite a while. Very um, very cool. There's so many. There's so there's so many other games. Like I, I just well, had I to. Mean, when you asked the question, I had to pull up my my notes of like I, I just have a notes document with a bunch of games that I want to play and. It's overwhelming, man. I mean, it. Um, I've had several conversations oh. now about this. I mean, there, there are so many freaking good games. And so I've talked many. to several designers. And one of the things that I often ask some of the designers is, you know, what concerns you? And something that's emerging now that I'm, you know, 20 some odd interviews in um, talking to gamer uh, game designers. One of the things that is starting to pop up more and more and people are like, I'm concerned that there's a lot of great games that aren't getting played. There's a lot of, and, and it's a weird concern when you think about it, but it is just a deluge of it. I had Steve Jackson on the show and, you know, Steve Jackson talked about, um, there's, there's a trash pile of really great games and there's, there's, there's our, there's shelves of games that people have played once and these games deserve to be played more. And it's a weird spot to be in. It's an astonishing place for the, the community to be in and, one of the things that is really hard about it is obviously being seen and being, you know, having all these amazing games go on play. It's just like an absolute tragedy. Yeah. Um, and look, I mean, this is why I'm very grateful for, for, for shows like these, you know, shows that help curate, help bring to attention games that uh, you might not otherwise hear for actual plays like oh my god heart goes out to all the actual play folks like i know how much work it is to put together a stream i you know the people who are scheduling half a dozen folks every week playing campaigns playing new games having guests come on like i know how much work that is you're all amazing <laughs> you're thank fun. you so much <laughs> you're such a kiss ass <laughs> um, i am but no i really i really think um it's a ton of work man <laughs> it's so much work you know i've done that work i know how much work it is but here, here's what i'll say about it is our community is totally distributed right there's no town hall that we're all meeting up in right so to me the public space i you know i'm really like beating this drum every time i you know talk in one of these but for me, like the public space of our community is made up of these shows and these actual plays and Twitter. It's all distributed around. And like, that's where we're sharing our norms, we're sharing our learnings, we're telling each other stories about games we've played. Um, well, it sounds like you've experienced this too. And I, I'm astonished by this is the generosity, the generosity of, of the tabletop gaming community, especially the role playing community blows me away. Um, blows me away. Um, I have yet, I have yet to be told no. I have every person I have reached out to over the last year and a half is like, yeah, Craig, whatever, you know. And like, you know, I expect Monty Cook to say, who, who the hell are you, you know? And I, and like when I reach out to these people, um, you know, I reach out and I say, look, you know, I've only got ten thousand listens a month. I'm not like like there's much bigger players than me. I'm I am small, 
And I've yet to see anybody. And I'm very upfront with that when I do my reach outs. And they're like, yeah, Craig, just let's figure out a time. And, and it just it blows me away. And then to be part of like the Twitter community, seeing designers supporting other designers and and, and the help that happens and the generosity, it, it's astounding. I mean, we're all learning from each other. Yeah. And, and look, like one of the things that I think is coolest about it, I, I, I can't remember where I saw this, but it was this, um, it was this, this great point about music, right? Recording music really starts to blow up in the 50s, right? You got the Beatles, mm-hmm. you got people buying records, radio, play, all that kind of stuff. And if you go 100 years earlier, you want to listen to music, you got to go to a concert, you got to play your own music. The concerts are pretty rarefied experiences. Not that many people have access to it. Or you're singing, along, singing around the, the table with your, your friends, uh, your family. Um, and we've gotten pretty used to going to the movies and having like $300 million of visual sonic overload just like shoved into our eye sockets. Yep. And that's amazing. I love it so much. But... I would like to normalize more people just feeling comfortable playing small games, making small games. Like if you just make one super weird game and it's really unpolished and you play it with your closest friends to me, like you're a game designer. And I think that's awesome. And I want more people to do that. And I want people to hack games, you know, it's uh. so I think a side effect of this abundance is maybe more people feeling like game design is, it's not this thing that someone else is doing and I have to spend like, Two hundred dollars on like all the bits of D and D five E that I need to like correctly to play correctly. Yeah, I'm doing air quotes, um, but just to feel like it's just it's just a thing. Like you get together with friends and you like that's what you did as kids, right? You just just make up games, play games. Sometimes you write them down. Sometimes you put them on itch. I think it's yeah. Well, and you know, thank God for platforms like Itch, is because uh, again, it's it's that community. Well, Raph, this was a great time, man. I really appreciate you uh, carving out some time for us. Hey, and I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's just been a, a joy talking to you, man. I'm glad. And for those of you that stuck around all the way to the end, you know what? I appreciate you too. Thanks for listening. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads Yeah, and we bled in, and this is inevitable, um, but it allows us to give a great launching point for the third segment because you talked about a little bit about the beginning, so this is great. This is great. All right. Um, Miniatures! Are you going to make minis for it? <laughs> God, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> let's see, let's see how the Kickstarter goes. <laughs> great, great, great way to up the cost. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, that was perfect, my friend. Thank you, sir. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. All right. So, uh, Ads, idea in the- things, things being promoted. Cool, cool stuff. <laughs> the idea here, um, 
what I'd like to do is before we get into the mechanics, which will be the next segment, um, and then we'll get into how you made, like the process of making your zone. What I want in this next segment is to really get an understanding of what it is. Um, so don't worry about where it came from. Don't worry about it. Let's talk about the world. Let's talk about uh, the feel, um, what the, some of the goals of the game are. Um, and, uh, you know, what we'll want to do is figure out if someone's listening and they can go, yeah, I think I could grok that. I think I could play that. Right, that right, right. And we'll talk about things like influences and where it came from later. Yeah, in the, that'll be right. all part of this. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, oh, hey, are you still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored... Why not go to Patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. 